Hey, my name's Michael, Michael Klein, one of the senior staff workers here. Uh, Jake was telling a little story earlier on, oops, uh, about his first year experience. And uh, I have a first year experience, and I remember being in first year, and uh, the faculty leader got us all med students to sit together, and there was about well, 20, 25 of us in first year med, and she said, look at the person on your right, Look at the person on your left. By the time you're interns, by the time you're working, only one of you will still be a Christian. And that scared the living daylights out of me, actually. I think at that time I wanted to work out what it is to stay being Christian. And I think I needed to hear words of assurance as well. And if you want to hear some words of assurance, today's talk in 1 John chapter 5, well, that's going to be helpful for us because we're going to hear words of assurance. Let me lead in prayer. Uh, Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a God who has spoken in the past through our forefathers in many and various ways. But Father, in these last days, you've spoken clearly to us by your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we'd come to your word today attentive and listening to what it says. Father, that we'd understand what it says. And Father, that our lives would change, will be changed as a result of it. And Father, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, while I had a certain first-year experience uh, that's about, you know, being scared about falling away, I I guess there's a similar but not exactly the same uh, incident that happened in uh, 1 John. Uh, So, uh, if you remember, in chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, verses 19 to 20, it talked about a group of people leaving them. So, if you've got your Bibles, it'd be great to open them. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19 is the place that uh, you can see quite clearly. Uh, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And what we hear about these people were that they were the antichrists. They were the ones who said, I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. That I I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And you've got to remember, Jesus came to his own people, the Jews. and, And John records for us in the Gospel that he came to his own and we read, his own did not receive him. There's a whole bunch of people who are happy when Jesus first started coming amongst them, talking a whole lot of things, doing miracles. But when they found out that he claimed to be the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, and the sort of Messiah that he was going to be, a crucified Messiah by the Romans, even though there were thousands who started off, they left and they departed. And so John actually writes this letter as a letter of reassurance. You remember that poem that we had a look at last week? Chapter 2, verses 12 to 14? A wonderful poem of reassurance. I write this, young men. I write this, children. I write these, fathers, because I want to encourage you. And you remember the structure of 1 John, that that piece of poem actually separates 1 John into two little bits. There's the introduction, which actually talks about the darkness passing away. So that key verse in 1.5, God is light, the light has come. And what we see is that the darkness is passing. The darkness of sinfulness, the darkness of hate, that's passing. And what walking in the light means is loving your brothers, loving your sisters, loving one another. And just like the darkness is passing away in that introductory section, what we read in the second part of 1 John is that the world is passing away. Darkness is passing away, the connection with the second part The world is passing away. That word world is actually going to occur 22 out of the 23 times in 1 John. This is the context where we understand the second half of 1 John. And last week, one of the things that we talked about 
was that the key themes that made understanding living in the world make sense was these three key themes about being born, about being children and about sonship. And that's the context where we understand that. Well, today's passage actually goes back to the assurance stuff again. And so John writes about assurance and so you can actually see it there uh, in chapter 5, verse 13, the passage that we're looking at today, a, a great word of reassurance. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's a word of assurance. And John, what he does in this little section is talk about three pieces of reassurance, three reminders, three words of assurance. And it's all in this little phrase, and this is. Now, uh, some translation of the Bible doesn't translate the word and, and so the NIV that we read from just talks about this is, and it gets mixed up with all the other this is this. Uh, but if you've got an English standard version, ESV or something like that, you'll see that little key phrase, and this is, happens three times. And so, for example, in verse 4, it actually says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Verse 11, there's that phrase again, and this is, and this time it's translated in the NIV, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 14, there's that little phrase again, and this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Each time he uses that phrase, and this is, there's a new word of assurance. And so today's outline is fairly simple, actually. Three words of assurance about our faith, about eternal life, about prayer. And we're going to take each of those in turn. All right? So the first one we're going to look at is the assurance of faith. To be sure, to be sure, to be sure. Uh, chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So one of the first things he talks about is being born, being children of God. He who believes is one who is a child of God, and they'll love each other. And those of you who are doing senior Bible studies in 1 John, next week, that's a big topic that you're going to be talking about, about loving one another. But here, he talks about the children of God overcoming, victorious. It's actually the same word, overcome, victorious, um, uh, victory, same word. It's, all, it's, it's piled on each, on, on each other. Conquerors, overcomers, victorious. It's almost like the overcomers are those who have overcome. And who is it that overcomes the world? But those who overcome, actually. It's just piled on each other. And what does it say? How do the ones who are born of God overcome? Well, it says it there, here, in verse 4, at the end there. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Faith, belief, trust, dependence. That's what gives you overcoming the world. And I think sometimes we get it all mixed up because we think different emphases, right? Like we think, no, no, it must be... Our faith that overcomes the world. Not someone else's faith, but our faith. I don't think the emphasis is on the word our. Nor, I think, is the emphasis on the word faith. It's not our faith that overcomes the world. It's not our faith, nor is it our faith. That is, what's important in faith isn't the action of faith, or that it belongs to us, but the actual content of faith. So when I was at university, I remember reading a few books by a guy called Paul Little. Uh, one is called uh, Know What You Believe, another is Know Why You Believe, and another one's How to Give Away Your Faith. It was really helpful for me. And I remember an illustration that he gave about a guy who was trying to uh, cross a ditch, a big ravine, and it was crossing on a rope. And he said that, look, 
if, if the bridge is dodgy, if it's just made out of string, and you step on it and it will break, no matter how much faith you have in it, you, you, you can psych yourself up to extraordinary lengths. No matter what degree of faith you have, if the object that you trust and depend on, that bridge, is just made out of string, you're going to end up in the drink. But if the bridge is solid, if it's solid, no matter how little faith you have, even if you go on it very tentatively, you walk on it, it's going to carry you through. That is what Paul said, and I think what John is saying here, is that what's really important, what gives you assurance, is not just faith in itself, but the object of faith. And you actually see it in verse 6. This is, what is the object of faith? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Our belief is founded on the crucified Christ, on whom, when the Roman spear came, water and blood flowed from his side. Our belief in the one who was deemed Messiah at his baptism, at the water, the one who is the Christ. Now, remember last week's talk, one of the things that we were saying was that the Son of God and the word Christ they actually referred to the same thing, same concept, right? And the key thing that you need to understand in 1 John is that God the Son, that second person of the Trinity, actually became the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. And this is the big issue in John because there were people who were rejecting the Christ. They didn't want the crucified Messiah. They didn't want the one who was crucified. They were anti-Christ and so they turned away. And so John is saying, no, no, this guy... This is the Messiah. You remember the baptism? You remember when the heavens opened and the dove descended on him and the voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And you remember at the crucifixion, you remember that Roman soldier at the foot of the the cross saying, Surely this man is the Son of God, the Messiah. But of course, for the first century Jew, they couldn't handle that. They thought Messiah, yes, I love the idea of Messiah. The Old Testament promised a Messiah who was going to conquer the world, who was going to take over the world and bring world peace. They were going to get rid of the Romans, this this Messiah. And yet instead of one who conquers the Romans, who conquers the world, we see one who seemed to be conquered by the world. And what's more, the way that he died, death on a cross. Well, if you're a Jew, you knew that anyone who died on a tree, well, they were sinners. They were shameful. And yes, of course, that was true of Jesus. He was condemned for sin, not for his sin, but for the sin of the world. And for the first century Romans, crucifixion was just one of their many ways of killing someone. But crucifixion was great for the Romans because it was a public display. And I reckon, you know, Pilate would have been wringing his hands as he put up the sign, Jesus, King of the Jews. Because there was a public display of saying, this is what happens to rebellious people who want to put up their king against the Romans. This is what's going to happen. They're going to be executed. You want to rebel? Well, this is it. And you can understand why heaps of people left. You you can understand, hey, you know what? I, I thought there was going to be a conquering Messiah. And what we have is the crucified Christ. I thought we're going to have one who's going to be victorious over the Romans. And yet the Romans are the ones who won, it seems like. All until three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead and gave his spirit on his disciples in that upper room and they were commissioned to preach forgiveness and judgment. 
And so verse 6 it says, And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, the blood, the three in agreement. We accept men's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. At the baptism, this is my Son. This is the Messiah. At the crucifixion, this is my Son. This is the Messiah. At the resurrection, as the Spirit was breathed out, post-resurrection, they preached the resurrection that Jesus is the Christ. You remember John 13 to 17 in that upper room? Five times Jesus promised the giving of the Holy Spirit. They didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. But it wasn't until the resurrection they actually understood when Jesus said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will witness, he will testify about me. And here it is. This is what's happening. When they came face to face with the risen Christ, they were forced to understand that the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story, but actually a new beginning. It wasn't a defeat, but a conquest. They were victorious. The age of forgiveness and mercy, the age of the judgment of the world, the age of the Spirit has come. And this is the testimony by the water, by the blood, by the Spirit. The apostolic witness that says Jesus is the Christ. And we hear that from God's testimony through the prophets in the Old Testament as well. You remember Zechariah in chapter 12 saying, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. As one is pierced, the spirit of God is given, poured out of grace and supplication. And so verse 10 of our passage draws this together about victorious faith. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. You believe God? You believe the testimony of the water, of the blood, of the Spirit? You know that Jesus is the Christ. When you reject Jesus as the Christ, you make God out to be a liar. That's what it's saying. Well, the next thing we're sure about is about eternal life. And so verse 11 it says, and this is the testimony. There's that phrase again, and this is. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Our assurance, like faith, is not based on ourselves. Much like faith, faith is not about how much faith we've got, whether we've got enough faith to cross that bridge, nor is eternal life based on ourselves. It's not what I've done, it's not how good I am, it's not whether I'm able, it's not about our spirituality, it's not about my morality, it's not, about, it's not anything about me. My eternal life is tied up with him who has eternal life, who is the word of life, who is the word of eternal life. That's what we read in 1 John. As you see Jesus, the resurrected one, the one who defeated death, the one who is victorious over death, there is our life. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage on the resurrection talks about when the perishable has, uh, has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is defeated. Death couldn't hold our Lord Jesus. And you know what? Death doesn't sting anymore. 
that sting of death, sin, well, that's been cancelled by Jesus' death on the cross. We can actually be washed clean. We don't have to fear judgment. Man is destined to die once. Yes, that's what Romans, uh, Hebrews 9 says. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But the judgment, well, we've got no sin against us. Jesus' victory has defeated sin, defeated death, and our eternal life is tied up with him. To be sure, to be sure, to be sure. The third word of assurance comes in verse 14. And this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Now remember the context of this part of 1 John, this latter part. It's all about being born, about being children, and about sonship. It's really a family relationship. And it's coming to a father who's willing to give you more than you'll actually want to ask. It's a father who, who loves you dearly and that you can approach him. I don't know, one of the hard things about talking about father-children relationship in Christian context is that in our world we, we live in families that are so stuffed up, actually. And whenever I give illustrations like this, there are people who would go, you know what, I don't get what you mean by fathers because my father abused me or they were absent or something like that. Well, can I say that if your father has failed you, you feel it deeply and bitterly because you actually have a, a concept of fatherhood which is obvious and clear. And I want you to cling on to that because I don't want you to go, well, this is my experience of fatherhood and this is what God is like. I want you to go, no, this is what God is like and this is what true fatherhood is like and I can actually approach God. Uh, for those of you who are quick at flicking your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, 15. If you don't, just, just note it down. That's, that's probably enough. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And it's just interesting. There's a little footnote on the word family and it says fatherhood or fatherhood. And you can almost understand it as, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. How do we understand who God is? Not by our conception of fatherhood or families or whatever it is, we understand God the Father because he reveals himself as Father. And the God who reveals himself as Father is a million times better than what conception of fatherhood you've got. Yes, we know that good fathers will give us only what's good rather than the silly things that we ask for. When my middle daughter Verity says, you know what, Dad, I run on lolly and fish. I don't know where the fish bit comes in, but anyway, that's what she says. Right? I'm not going to just give her lollies and fish. It, it, it doesn't work that way. You know that good fathers never hold back any good things from us. You know that good fathers never require us to perform standards of behaviour to get rewards or presents or something. And they never use gifts as a reward for good behaviour. And, and you know that good fathers are always on our side who wants to love us and give us everything that we need in the face of opposition. Well, whatever conception of fatherhood that you have, blow it a million percent. Because God is Father and he says here, you have confidence in approaching God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we can put in there. That if we ask anything according to his will, his great purposes, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. 
ask of him good things, things according to his purpose, and he promises to give him, give them to us. Well, verse 16 and following is a little bit of a doozy. There's a bit of a cleaning up to do. It says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray that, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There's a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin is a sin that does not lead to death. Right? Great. Easy. Next point. Um, <laughs> I, I think before we start here, one of the things to remember is that that is the sub-point of this third point. Right? Uh, John is trying to say, I want to assure you of these three things. In the light of those who lead because they are against Jesus, I want you to be assured about faith, eternal life, approach to God in prayer. And this little section, I think, is explaining that a little bit more in, in one particular context. Uh, I can explain this with a more difficult passage, like uh, Numbers 15, where it talks about sinning with a high hand and unintentional sin and all that sort of stuff. And I was thinking, what's the best way to explain the different types of sin, right? Um, last week I gave you some parental advice that you never call your kids you know, naughty because that's the identity that, get, that they get. Uh, so here's another bit of parenting advice. You've got to make sure that your punish, punishment actually matches the right sort of naughty behaviour. Right? So when I look at my kids, they do different sorts of naughty things. Uh, that is, they do childish things because they're just childish. They're a little bit uncoordinated. You know, I can't expect a six-year-old to be able to hold, always hold a cup steady and they'll spill it and stuff like that. And, and the danger is... When you punish severely childish things just because they're, ch- they're childish, they're, they're children, that's just unfair and horrible. Right? So you get that, don't you? That there's some things that kids do that are just childish. And there's naughty behaviour as well, where they do something that's wrong, where you need to handle it. But, you know, they, they're just in the habit of doing the wrong thing and they're just saying, look, sorry, Dad, I don't mean to do it. That happens and you need to correct it and stuff like that. So there's childish behaviour, there's naughty behaviour, but you know that there's defiant behaviour as well. When they actually want to say, Dad, I don't care what you say, rack off, right? Um, I I remember driving up to the Central Coast with a bunch of kids, not my kids, a while ago, and they were just making a terrible racket in the back seat and, you know, shouting at each other, taking their seatbelts off, throwing things at each other. And I think I I got really fed up, pulled over the side of the freeway and said, sit down, shut up, put on your seatbelt, right? Started driving off again. And I think for about 10 seconds I had a bit of peace until one of the kids actually said, Michael, I hope you know I'm still standing on the inside. <laughs> That's defiance. They can do the right thing, put on their seatbelt, shut up, sit down, but in their heart of hearts, they're defiant. And I think that's what John is trying to differentiate. There's some sin, much like last week when we talked about uh, sin and lawlessness, right? This week he's trying to say, you know what? There's some sins, well, they're unintentional. You, you can't help it. That's what you do. You, you do things that you don't mean to do. And you don't even know they're sinful. And there's some things that you do that are wrong and you know that you shouldn't do, but you're repentant of it. But then there's also rebellious rejection, that type of sin, which actually says, God, I want nothing to do with you. I want to run life my own way and you've got no right to do to change what I do. All wrongdoing is sin, that's right, but there is a difference. And I think this section, to understand it well, is that there's defiant sin and there's unintentional sin, or sin that we're actually repentant for. And what John is saying is, when your brother sins, when they, it's not a defiant sin, when they sin, yes, by all means, bring them to repentance. By all means, rebuke them, but do pray for them. 
Because the promise here is that God will actually restore them. Well, in the last five minutes, uh, uh, John actually brings this letter to a conclusion in verses 18 to 21. And it pretty much summarises the whole letter of 1 John. And, it, and you'll see here that it uses those key, uh, that key concept again about being born in verse 18, about being children, verse 19, and about the Son of God in verse 20. Uh, so there are three things that we know, he says there. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. Verse 19, the second one, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Well, the first one, about sin and protection. We know about sin. We know about protection. Last week we talked about that, about sin and lawlessness. If you're a child of God, you don't stand in that lawless camp. Yes, you may continue to do some sin, but you're not a, you, you, you don't belong to sin. You, you're not lawlessness. And if you do sin, in chapter 1 it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And the great promise is that we have an advocate, we have one who speaks to the Father in chapter 2, in our defence. He will guard us. He will guide us. A Christian is not a perfect person. A Christian is a forgiven person. And you don't need to fear the evil one when you sin. You can actually say, God, I'm sorry, I'm repentant, I want to change. And God says, yes, that's good. I have provided for you the atoning sacrifice. The second one is about the evil one and us being children of God. Yes, there's a real spiritual battle that's going on. That's what it's saying. There is evil in the world. And and we know that. You know, um, one of the studies that you're doing this week, if you're doing the senior studies, talks about testing the spirits. We know the truth because of the Holy Spirit. And yet we need to test every spirit because they're false spirits and there are false prophets around the place who's going to try to mislead you, mislead you that Jesus is not the Christ. And we need to be on our guard on that. Know that this world is under the evil one. We're in the context of the world, but know also that the victory has been won. The decisive victory has been won. And the third one, it's about uh, God sending his spirit so that we know the truth, that we'd have understanding. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth in uh, chapter 2 of verse 20. You will know the truth. It brings us understanding the Spirit. Jeremiah chapter 31 talks about uh, God putting the law in our minds and writing it in our hearts. He he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or man his brother, saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why was that going to happen? For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The Spirit comes after Pentecost as it breathed out on the disciples. The Spirit actually helps us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God. And it's understanding. And it's not just intellectual understanding. My atheist friends, they go, if I can know that God is God, that God exists, then I will believe. 
It, it's not that level of, of, of ontological understanding or something like that. It's relational. Why will they know? Jeremiah says, For I will forgive their forgiveness and will remember their sins no more. It's relational. It's about a relationship. You will know God when you're forgiven. And the Lord Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sin, rises again, overcoming the judgment that falls on humanity and gives us his spirit so that we can now call God our Father and our Lord Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. We have the true God and he is the eternal life. Well, 1 John actually finishes off, for some people, quite weirdly. Chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry is about false gods and false ways to God. And John is saying here, there is only one way to God. And that's by our Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand Jesus is the long-promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that he is God's son at his baptism, at the crucifixion and his resurrection, when you see this one is all that the hope of history is looking to, well, that's the way to eternal life. And to take anything else, it's absolutely foolish and stupid. Here's the Christian confidence. Nothing about us, actually. Not about what we do. Not about who we are. There's, there's no presumption of our goodness or anything like that. But our confidence is in Jesus, who died and rose again. That's our confidence. Well, friends, that's the end of a series. And it would be really sad, I think, if, if I left it there and those of you who've been investigating and coming to these talks over the last three weeks don't want to become a child of God. That would be sad. And so I want to give an opportunity for those of you who know that you're not children of God, not born of God, that haven't received Jesus as Lord, that don't know him and his spirit, a chance to do that. And it's fairly simple. It's doing something like this, praying a prayer that really says, sorry, thank you, please. Uh, sorry for your defiance, that defiant sin that we talked about. Thank you for Jesus in his death and his resurrection doing the amazing thing of destroying sin that we can have eternal life and then asking him to change you and forgive you that you can live in the light and love your brothers and sisters and love the Lord. Well, if you're a person that wants to make that switch from being a child of the devil, as we talked about last week, to being a child of God, I want to invite you to join me in prayer, quietly in your heart, as I pray this. Dear God, God, I'm sorry for my defiance and rebellion against you, trying to run life my own way, ignoring you. God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die for me, to give him new life in the resurrection, to pay for my debt and to destroy sin and death so that I can now have life and life eternally. Please change me and forgive me that I may live with Jesus as my Lord, learning to love you and to love others. Amen. Friends, I want to say, if that's a prayer that you pray, that's fantastic. Today you're a child of God. And can I get you to mark that on the back of those cards that you were given, on those contact cards, and just drop it in the bucket. And we'd love to catch up with you and to talk about how you can grow as a child of God.